On them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the, hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors, and he has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our God, we give you thanks for your word and for your spirit. We give you thanks for the hope that you extend to us in your son, Jesus born in Bethlehem at Christmas. We ask now that as we come to sit with your scriptures, that you would be with us. We know that you know the stories of our lives. You know all the things that we bring into this room, all, these, all the things we carry with us into the holiday season, our hopes and dreams, our regrets, our fears, the shame that we carry, the successes that we're proud of, all the things that excite us, that we're looking forward to, and the places where we are just bored. You know us. And so we ask now that you would search us, know us, smile upon us, and be with us. 
that we may know something of your peace. We ask through Christ our Lord, amen. So this Advent, we are reflecting on the season of Advent um, and how during this time of year, the holiday season, how Advent is something we so desperately need. Because as we've, as we've reflected over the past several weeks, you know, the, the holidays, this time of year, is something that, that many of us love, many of us dread, and we find this time being one that can often be characterized by escape. For some of us, we like to escape into the holiday season, right? We, uh, we like to get into it, get into the Christmas spirit. We spend too much money. We play the playlists. We wear the tacky sweaters. We get into it, right? And, and it becomes something we can get swept up into, this movement of sentimentalism, of consumerism, of all of that stuff. Others prefer to escape from it. It's a season that highlights the places of disappointment and loss in our lives. It's the place, it's the time of year where the pain that we feel, the people we've loved and lost, the things that didn't work out become more acutely felt and experienced in our lives than other times of the year. And so we dread this time of year and want to escape from it. We all bring our stuff into the holidays. And Advent, though, is this season that, that pushes us, invites us, not into a space of escape, but engagement. Advent is a season of preparing for the coming of Christ. Actually preparing our lives, our hearts, our minds for the reign of Christ that will come in fullness when he comes again. It's not just preparing for Christmas, it's preparing for Christ. And so practicing Advent is something that is altogether different than simply getting into the spirit of the holiday season. I know many of you have read that piece by Tish Warren that came out in the New York Times, her op-ed uh, that came out at the end of November about Advent. Uh, it's called, Want to Get Into the Christmas Spirit? Face the Darkness. She writes this. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache. Our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief and it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. And she goes on to say this, I'm well aware that for most Americans, Christmas has less to do with contemplating the incarnation of Jesus than celebrating friends, family, reindeer, and Black Friday sales. Even among observant Christians, the holiday season has often been flattened into a sentimental call to warm religious feelings, if not a charged yet pointless argument over happy holidays versus Merry Christmas. Still, I think Advent offers wisdom to the wider world. It reminds us that joy is trivialized if we do not first intentionally acknowledge the pain and wreckage of the world. Advent. It's a season of waiting in the darkness for the dawning of the light, of watching and waiting for Christ. It's a season that makes space 
for grief, for lamentation, alongside of hope. And so this Advent, we've been considering some of these words that surface this time of year, words like hope and love and peace and joy that we experience both as we're putting those words on the front of cards and pictures of our smiling families and sending them to one another. I think my card says peace on earth this year. At the same time as we're doing that, we're also experiencing a profound lack of those things. And what we also experience at this time is these words, they become fodder for making kitschy uh, whatever, right? Like my card. Um, But they're also these profoundly important, loaded concepts in the scriptures and in the Christian life that are essential for our flourishing. And so we're turning our attention to reflect on some of these words, and the word that we're reflecting on, the concept we're reflecting on today is peace. Peace. Just like hope and love, peace is something we all want. We would all affirm as good. We all know that we need it. And we all experience a lack of it in our lives. Right? There's the holiday stress where we experience the lack of it, where, you know, the, relation, the relational component to the holiday season may not be what we hope it would be. The financial stress that comes with the holiday season can awaken unrest and disquiet in our own lives, right? The busyness of the holiday season can leave us feeling so spread thin that peace just feels unattainable. There's the year-end stress with deadlines that many of us have to meet for work or even for personal reasons. Or there's the disappointments. If you look back over the year in review, goals that you set for yourself at the beginning of 2019 and you're measuring the year and how it went against what you hoped it would be. And then, of course, there's the current state of the world stress, right? That's not so much holiday particular, but the fact that we're contemplating peace on the week of impeachment is not lost on me, and I assume it's also not lost on you. It's the week in which we saw, for the third time ever, the President of the United States impeached by the House of Representatives, by the largest vote in history, and also by the most partisan vote in history. It's just a reflection of the dividedness of our country, regardless of what you feel about Trump or impeachment or whatever, the fact of the dividedness is just obvious. It's not a peaceful moment in our country's history. News of violence and injustice at home and abroad, if you live in the city, you get barraged with this stuff and it hits way too close to home. And then, of course, there's just the social media factor, right? The fact that we live in a world that is curated in so many ways by these algorithms that put things in front of us and we opt into these spaces where there is this active component of cultivating the opposite of peace. I've referred before to the work of Molly Crockett, someone whose whose work I have enjoyed looking at um, sort of superficially from a distance. She's a professor of experimental psychology at Yale who studies neuroscience and she studies the ethics and uh, neurosci- neuro- sorry, the neuroscience of ethics, and she also studies the economics of anger and how that affects uh, our use of social media. And she, she shows how um, out of all the emotional responses that we have to things, the emotion that's most likely to make us click on clickbait is anger. And so there are entire you know, like divisions of companies out there who get paid to make you mad so that you'll click on things that will make money for their companies. And the algorithms 
that curate our social media feeds put the ones in our feed that are most likely to make us mad, right? We live in a world where people everywhere have an incentive to actively and aggressively oppose peace because it makes a lot of money. Fear and anger, envy, those things sell and we buy. And so we live in a world that shapes us powerfully, a world that opposes peace. And so that's our all-the-time reality, and it only gets augmented, highlighted this time of year as the holidays come and they bring uh, to the surface many of the things that otherwise lay a little bit more hidden. So we've got these two texts that we just read, both of which mention peace, right? You've got this reading from Isaiah, uh, and you've got this reading from Luke. And one of the things that I think um, these texts give us a window into is the difference between the way you and I often think about the peace that we want, on one hand, and the vision of peace that is actually held forth to us in the scriptures. Think about it. When you think of peace, the peace that you want, the peace that you need, what do you think of? For me, my first go-to idea of peace is like the five minutes peace, right? We have a little children's book in our house called Five Minutes Peace, where like the mama elephant needs five minutes peace from her kids. And, and the whole book is about how she can't get it, right? And it resonates deeply. Um, but that's where I typically go uh, when I think of peace. It's like I need, I need tranquility instead of stress, right? Or maybe you think of the absence of conflict, whether it's like war or whether it's interpersonal conflict, where instead of strife, instead of some sort of obvious, uh, you know, engagement against one another, we would like for there to be the absence of that kind of thing. And of course, that's part of it. That's good, right? But the vision of peace that we get in the scriptures is something far more robust than that. It's not simply the absence of bad things. But it's actually the presence of good things. The Hebrew word shalom is the word that is, it's a, it's a, it's a very important concept in, in the Christian scriptures, in the Jewish scriptures. It's a, it's a very important concept. It's the one that typically gets translated as peace, but it means so much more than what we think of as peace. It's a word that means wholeness and flourishing, completeness. It's a word that, that it's a relational word that has to do with everything being rightly related to God and to everything and everyone else. It's a picture, the picture of shalom is a picture of a world in which the world that God has made and all of its inhabitants relate to God and to one another in a way that brings forth life rather than chokes it out. It's not simply the absence of the problematic relating, it's the presence of the life-giving right-relatedness. And so when these passages that we've just read speak of peace and begin to cast a vision of this prince of peace or the way of peace, it's not simply the absence of conflict that's in view, but it's actually the reconciliation and restoration of all things. That vision that lies at the heart of what God promised from of old and is bringing forth into the world and the promise that centers on this Jesus, 
whom we watch and wait, for whom we watch and wait in the Advent season. If you look at this passage from Isaiah 9, there's this picture of this child that has been born, a son given. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he's named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a prophecy that we often read during the Advent season, but it originally comes from a moment in the story of Israel where the the kingdom of Israel is divided and there's this threat in the north where the Assyrian army has come and they've done bad things and they've conquered the northern territories and there's this hope in this moment that the bad king that has gotten them into this trouble is going to be run out of town and that a good king is going to come in and replace him. And so most immediately, this passage seems to be speaking to that good king, probably Hezekiah, who comes in and and replaces the bad king, probably Ahaz, in this moment of Israel's history. And the the call is to remember how God was faithful in days of old, this days of Midian. It's a story back when the judge Gideon did good things and God blessed uh, a victory there and God delivered God's people from their enemies in that moment. And he says, just as God did it then, God will do it again. And so Hezekiah comes, and the story gets better for a moment. But of course, it doesn't fully, Hezekiah doesn't fully bear the weight of all of this promise. That he'll establish, you know, that peace for the throne of David and his kingdom will endure forever. We don't see that realized in the reign of that king. And our, our appetite for this coming king remains unsatiated. But the story keeps moving forward, and the people of Israel keep watching and waiting for God to visit them and to deliver them. And as we read the story forward on into the New Testament, what we discover is that another child is given. Another son is promised. Another one from this line of David who will be a good king in the way that none of the other kings have come before. And of course, we see that promise realized in Jesus who is this prince of peace, and this prophecy of Isaiah gets read toward him and takes on a whole new dimension. And we read it in technicolor, we read it in three dimensions, and it comes to life as we see God himself come in person to be the one to establish God's reign of shalom in the earth. In a moment when the parched earth was so thirsty for deliverance. When God's people lived under the iron fist of Rome and longed to be saved. And it's in that moment that Jesus comes. Nick Walterstorff, in his book, Until Justice and Peace Embrace, describes this shalom as the presence of right and harmonious relationship characterized by delight and flourishing before the Lord. Neil Plantinga, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, describes the basic problem of what is wrong with the world as humanity's vandalism of shalom. We've vandalized the way life ought to be, and we do it repeatedly. And what God is doing in Jesus, what we see is this prince of peace comes to establish the kingdom of peace. We see God renew his commitment to restore all things, to reconcile us to God and one another, 
and to unleash in the world a way of doing life that fits the way God intends life to be. Not the brokenness, not the cosmic ache, but flourishing life. Life as it ought to be. This is what God has come in Jesus to unleash in our midst. And as we read in Luke 1, at the end of this prayer of Zechariah, at the end of this passage, he talks about his son, John the Baptist, who's about to be born. He says, you know, God is going to, is, has provided this child, John, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the picture of the one who comes before Jesus to point to him, the one who comes watching and waiting and leads us in doing the same. You see, the good news of what God has done in Jesus is that he's, he's planted the seed of his kingdom of peace. And we don't see it fully writ large across the earth or our lives, do we? We've already acknowledged that. But what it is, is this mustard seed kingdom of peace that is planted in our midst. It's a new life in God's spirit planted among us. And God calls us to receive that gift of his reign of peace and to get swept up into that movement so that everything else about the way we do life toward God and toward one another reflects the reconciliation that God himself is doing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it the prophet says. We receive the gift of peace and God makes us into instruments of peace passing in the world. We had this moment at the beginning, in the middle of our service that we just did, right, where we extended one another the sign of Christ's peace. That's a moment in our service that's designed to form us as peace passers, as peacemakers, as peace builders, in the world. We practice it in our liturgy because we believe that what we do together in this moment of worship teaches us how to be human in the world. That as we come and we experience the reconciliation with God and one another in this moment, that that begins to rewire us, reform us, refresh us, and send us out into the world, remade in God's image as reconcilers and peace passers in the world. The peace we need, the peace that God promises, it's not just some absence of conflict, it's not just some feeling of tranquility, but it is this shalom, this right relating of all things. It's the full reconciliation of all that is broken. It's the flourishing of life in which everything and everyone is rightly related to God and to one another. And that is the vision that God gives us to shape our lives and to animate the way we live toward one another. Think about your own life story. All of it. Every one of us, if we look back over the story of our lives, can just look at how our, our stories are marked by broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship. It's beautiful when we have enduring ones that cover the the various chapters of our lives, but every single one of us in the room, as we look back over our life story, we can point to these important people in our lives that were important, and now we don't even know them. We can think of relational ruptures that mark the stories of our lives, some which have been repaired and some which have not. We can think about places where we have vacated that space, and we can think of places where we've been left behind. 
every one of us lives in a story of fragmentation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what your life would look like if that were not true of you? Can you imagine what your life would look like if that whole theme of fragmentation were replaced by a theme of reconciliation? If the whole theme of self-protection, of avoiding, of moving away were replaced by a theme of peacemaking? I can tell you for one, my life would look very different. The choices that I've made would look very different. The vision that God holds out for us of peace is a vision of this radical reconciliation. It's staggering. It's kind of scary. It feels impossible. Because when you think about the forgiveness that would be needed, the healing that would be needed, the repair that would be needed for something like that to be true, it is staggering and it feels utterly impossible. And in many places in our lives, when you think about the capacities we actually have, it is impossible. But the vision that God holds out for us is one, to live toward this right ordering of all things, this right relating of all things, where we become an embodiment of, an instrument of, that movement toward the other way. Not fragmentation, but reconciliation. This peace is not just a feeling, right? It's active. Like the hope and the love that we encountered in the weeks past as we reflected on them, peace also is something we are to take up by faith and live into with all that we have and with all that we are. You know, Jesus, when he met with his disciples in the Gospel of John, we see him say, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. As he instructs his people in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The Apostle Paul, as he's reflecting on what life in the Spirit looks like, life in union and communion with Christ, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And what I think they hold out for us in this moment, Jesus and St. Paul, is this life lived out of a place of peace that we receive from God. Where what we do, what we say, what we think is for the sake of peace with one another and in the world. Why don't we do it? What are the obstacles that keep us from pursuing that kind of peace? Well, on one level, I think we have like a physiological reason, right? We perceive as threats things that are threats and often things that are not threats. And so sometimes our peacemaking trajectory is shortcut by our fight or flight response to a threat. It's a scary thing to move into a peacemaking space sometimes. And it takes a kind of imaging of God and a becoming human, a being human that overrides some of, some of our more animalistic impulses to just survive at all costs, right? 
And so we have at the very basic level, we have like the, whatever, the amygdala hijack, right? As a, if, you, if you read about the brain or whatever, stuff happens in our world. We, in, we, in, we get stimuli in these moments. We'll be in a conversation with someone. We'll be triggered. And the thalamus sends it to both our amygdala and our cortex. And it's like a coin toss. Like, are you going to engage this like, a, like an animal, fight or flight? Or are you going to engage this like a human? And our fight or flight instinct kicks in because we feel threatened and we retreat or we attack, right? And so there's a physiological obstacle that's just there that requires a kind of overcoming in some sense where we actually need to be reformed as humans in our hardwiring, which is part of why we do this in worship as peace passers. Because we know we need to be actually formed at the gut level, at the instinctual level to be peacemakers in the world, lest we just become animalistic. We need to become human. But there's more to it. Another obstacle, of course, is our internal unrest. When we, when we feel a lack of peace in our own lives, when we feel that our own lives are unsettled or we don't experience peace with God, it's difficult to be extending a peace that we ourselves do not know. And so we live not out of peace, but out of anxiety or fear or anger or envy or all these other things, right? We become consumed with another vision for life. But then I think there's this more basic obstacle, and it's just this. I think sometimes we just have a, a limited vision for what peace is that handicaps us. Sometimes I think, really, it's, we settle for this superficial sort of keeping the peace, which is like code for avoiding conflict, right? Rather than engaging this bolder, more beautiful vision of peace, which is restoring things to rightness the way they ought to be. Our desire to avoid the negatives keeps us from pursuing the positives because the reality is peacemaking and peace building is often conflictual work, isn't it? If you've ever done it, if you've ever actually been in relationship with someone where it takes work, you know that conflict is part of it. Relationship building requires engaging conflict. Conflict isn't bad. Unhealthy conflict is bad. But conflict is inevitable. And so we engaging a conflictual process of peacemaking is essential for our becoming peacemakers with God and the world. As we think about what God has done with us in Jesus, you see this most obviously in Christ himself, the conflictual work of peacemaking that God has engaged on our behalf. Paul says he has made peace by the blood of his cross. God's love for you, God's commitment to peace on earth is such that he would give his own son, give his own self, and by the blood of his cross establish shalom in the earth. And he calls us to get swept up into that story, into that movement, into that vision for the world, to join him in this work of becoming peacemakers in the world, which is a very different vision than being conflict avoiders who just try to steer clear of politics and religion at the Thanksgiving dinner table or the Christmas dinner table. Don't rub anyone the wrong way. Get out of there unscathed and make sure there's no family drama. Very, very, very different vision of what it means to be an ambassador of this kingdom of peace in your own relationships and in the world. 
It's actually a very weird thing to be in a community that does this. Because the kind of peacemaking that is required, the kinds of things that it takes to be a part of a community of peacemakers, it's like confession of sin instead of defensiveness, right? It's compassion instead of competition. And it's forgiveness instead of judgment or punishment. And if you forget how weird it is because you've been here too long, just go ask someone for forgiveness in your life. They will become uncomfortable. If you go ask someone for forgiveness for something you've done wrong, they will become uncomfortable because you're not supposed to ask for that because no one wants to say, I forgive you. It acknowledges a wrong that's uncomfortable to acknowledge. We want to say things like, it's okay. No problem. It's all good. We opt for this shallow version of peacemaking when the deeper one is what's needed. But that takes work. It takes courage. It takes compassion. It takes a desire for relationship that overrides a desire to avoid conflict. And how does that happen? Only by an experience of it yourself where you recognize that this is what God has done with you. God loves you. God loves your neighbor so much that he's established peace between you. And he's called you to be bearers of that peace with one another. If you let that vision of peace wash over you, I think you'll find, and I'll find, that it's profoundly challenging and beautiful. And I find in that this invitation to enter into relationships with a kind of boldness that I'm afraid of, with a kind of vulnerability that's scary. But the promise of reconciliation and peace is magnificent. And the promise is that the one who calls us to join him in it is the one who will complete the work at the return of Christ for whom we watch and wait. This kingdom of shalom will come on the earth in fullness when he comes. And the call this Advent for us as we watch and wait is to bear witness to that reality, not only with our lips, but with our lives. May God give us grace that it would be so. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for the peace that you leave with us, your peace that you give to us in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would give us such a depth of an experience of that reconciling work in our friendships, in our church community, in our families, that we would be remade, that we would become more human in your likeness, not retreating from conflict in this never-ending quest for self-preservation, but instead, boldly, courageously, compassionately joining you on this peacemaking mission in the earth to be ambassadors of your kingdom of shalom with our families and with our friends, with our neighbors, with the people we work with, and that we ourselves would know the peace of your love, your presence, and your faithfulness. Would you make it that the peace of Christ would in fact rule in our hearts, that we may live for the sake of peace in your world, 
with you as we watch and wait for Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. The offering.